following is a teaching message from Shore Community Church. For more information on Shore or our teaching resources, visit www.shore.org.nz. So uh, I want to invite you, if you've got a Bible this morning, to turn over to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to look at this passage as uh, a reflection on the events of Easter uh, and, and really bounce off what, what Sean has shared in talking about the uniqueness of Jesus, not just as an historical figure who lived and died and maybe rose again 2,000 years ago, but as someone of increasing uh, importance in our lives today, someone of ongoing significance uh, in our lives for humanity for the world. I want to talk about what is so unique about the person of Jesus. And this passage in Philippians 2, uh, it's a very poetic sort of passage, very lyrical kind of sounding passage, but it sets forth, I think, uh, most plainly in the whole Bible, the identity of Jesus, who Jesus is, and therefore the significance of his death and his resurrection. And those two things are so interconnected. The identity question of who is Jesus unlocks the significance of what his dying and his rising means for us personally today. So let me read this to you, Philippians 2, uh, from verse 5 down to verse 11. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father." Uh, it's significant, I think, that we're celebrating uh, Resurrection Sunday today, three days after an awful massacre of Christians in Kenya. Uh, and you, you will have read about that in the, in the media reports coming out this week. And there's just a, seems like a bitter irony that that happened on the eve of Easter. You have this awful act where gunmen walk into a Kenyan university and gun down 148 people, including, I think, students and staff and security personnel. And it seems like people were specifically targeted because they were Christians. Obviously, there were political motivations in there, um, but people were separated out and targeted as being Christians. And, man, it brings the Easter story into sharp focus, doesn't it? That you have that happen on the Thursday before Easter. And here we are celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. And I think it brings into sharp focus the question of Jesus, the question of his death, and his resurrection, and what that means, and what hope it really gives. Because if Jesus is just another human being, just an inspired uh, human being, just a representative of God, or a, a religious teacher, then really he doesn't have a lot of hope to give people. He doesn't really have anything to say to the families of the victims of that massacre. If the Easter story is just the story of the triumph of love over hatred, if it's just the story of the resilience of the human spirit in the face of all kinds of opposition and evil, then really it doesn't have anything to say to those people who are affected by this massacre in Kenya. It doesn't have any hope to offer. It's a nice little religious story that we tell ourselves at Easter time. It's a story for a particular tribe or community of religious people, but it doesn't really go beyond that. 
And yet the first claim that we meet in this text about Jesus is perhaps the boldest claim that we can make about him, which in verse 6 is that he was in very nature God. And that's the key to Easter. Without that piece in place, the story really doesn't make sense, or it doesn't mean anything. His death certainly doesn't mean anything. His resurrection probably never happened. But if Jesus is and was God in the flesh, if he was God as a human being, then suddenly the Easter story comes alive. That Jesus was not just a man sent by God. He wasn't just a man inspired by God. He wasn't even just a prophet of God. That he was himself God as a human being. And the way that Paul unpacks this and describes this the deity of Jesus, is striking, particularly striking within the framework of Judaism that he was writing within. If you read the last couple of verses of this passage in verse 10 and 11, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. What Paul's doing there, Paul who wrote this passage, is he is quoting from the Old Testament, from the Hebrew Bible. He's quoting a passage from Isaiah 45. And in that passage, it's God speaking. It's Yahweh, the God of Israel speaking. And he says, before me, every knee will bow. And by me, every tongue will swear. This is God talking about people giving allegiance to himself. And this is what we call a statement of Jewish monotheism, the belief in one God, that there is one singular God, monotheism, one God. And here is Paul taking that statement and now applying it to Jesus. Paul doesn't argue with the idea of monotheism. He doesn't say, no, no, there's really now two gods. He says, yeah, you're right, there is one God, and now he has revealed himself as Jesus. He has revealed himself in the person of Jesus. So somehow, mysteriously, there is this union between Jesus and God, that he is God incarnate, God in the flesh. That's the, that's the bedrock of the Easter story. That's what makes the whole thing make sense. I want to play you a clip. Uh, which is an interview with Bono from U2. It was recorded last year. And what's interesting about this interview, often Bono can be quite elusive about spiritual things. Uh, you know, it's, he's hard to pin down on, on religious things. But in this interview, he's about as clear and overt as I've, I've heard or seen him be. And so this is an extract of that interview where he shares his own thoughts on who Jesus is. Have a look at this, and then we'll talk about it. I look to the scriptures for poetic truths. Um, as well as the sort of historical stuff I'm, I'm, I'm in, interested in. And of course, there was a historical Jesus. No, I'm talking about God. Oh, right. And, and well, I see, I, the, per, the person of Christ is my way to understand uh, God. But do you pray? Yes. To whom or what do you pray? To Christ. Way? To Christ. Yeah. And, and what do you pray for? I pray to get to know... Um, <laughs> the will of God, because then the prayers have more chance of coming true. I mean, that's the thing about prayer, isn't it? I mean, we don't do it in a very lofty way in our family. It's just a bunch of us on the bed, usually. A very big bed in our house. And all our, we've prayed with all our kids. We, we you know, we just, we, we read the scriptures, we pray. It's not even regular. Sometimes if we go to church on a Sunday, we go when the church has ended, and we'll just go in on our own as a family. For peace and quiet. For peace and quiet. And we'll pray, usually about people that we know who are struggling with something. Um, illness so, so, or so whatever. So then, what or who was Jesus as far as you're concerned? I think it's, the, it's a defining question for a Christian, is who was Christ. And, and I don't think you're let off 
easily by saying a great thinker or a great philosopher or, you know, because actually he went round saying he was the Messiah. That's why he was crucified. He was crucified because he said he was the Son of God. So he either, in my view, was the Son of God or he was not. No, no, not. Not. Yes. Forget yes. rock and roll messianic complexes. This is like, I mean, Charlie Manson type delirium. And I find it hard to accept that all the millions and millions of lives, half the earth for 2,000 years, have been touched, have felt their lives touched and inspired by some nutter. I just, I don't believe it. I, so I therefore it follows that you believe he was divine. Yes. And therefore it follows that you believe that he rose physically from the dead. Yes, yeah, I mean, uh, no problem with miracles. <laughs> Living around them. I am one. So, so when you pray then, you pray to Jesus. Yes. The risen Jesus. Yes. And you believe that he made promises which will come true. Yes. I do. Interesting, eh? Yeah, good old Bono. He's a rock star just like Sean. Really. But, uh, yeah, he, he's got an interesting story. And uh, am I leveraging Bono's celebrity status to promote the Christian faith? Of course I am. But it's not true because Bono said it. It's true because I think he articulates better than I can the truth of what this passage is describing. That if someone went around saying the kind of things that Jesus said about himself, like, I and the Father are one. Um, either that's true, or he is a delirious lunatic, not a good religious teacher, not a moral person. As C.S. Lewis said, he didn't really leave that option open to us. Either he was who he said he was, or he is an absolute nutter. And it's hard to believe that an absolute nutter has changed millions of lives through history. So the bedrock of Easter is this conviction, uh, right here at the beginning of this passage, that Jesus is in the very nature of of God. He is in the essence and the substance and the form of God. So the, the heart of this passage is really the question, what kind of God was Jesus? If Jesus is divine, if he is a deity, if he is God, what kind of God would become Jesus? And you have to press on in this passage to see the answer to that question. Verse 6, if we carry forward, says, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. That's, I think that's the key phrase there at the beginning of verse 7 in this whole passage, that he made himself nothing. And in the original language this was written in Greek, that's just one word, made himself nothing, is one word, the word kenosis. And it literally means to empty, like, like pouring water out of a container, to empty. And, and Jesus, this passage is saying, emptied himself. That even though he was equal with God, he didn't use that position in a self-serving, self-seeking, self-promoting way. Instead, he emptied himself. Not emptied himself of being God. He didn't empty himself of his divinity. He maintained being God right throughout his life. But he emptied himself of all the vestiges if you like, of deity, all the externalities. He emptied himself of the power that goes along with being God. He emptied himself of being all-knowing, of being all-powerful, of being omnipresent. He emptied himself of all that, all the honor, all the glory, all the status, all the rank of his heavenly home, 
emptied himself of it in order to share in our humanity, in order to take on all the mortality that we live with, all the decay of our human bodies, all the violence and the injustice of the world that we live with. And he took that on himself and not only became human, but shared in the most mortal of human experiences, death, even death on a cross, not just passing away quietly in his sleep, but even to the extreme of death on a cross, that God suffered and died on a cross as a criminal is at the heart of the Christian faith, an innocent criminal, but died a criminal's death, died one of the most gruesome, the worst form of state execution anyone's ever come up with, crucifixion, that you hang on a cross until you can't breathe anymore to pull yourself up. That's what happened to the God that we believe in. This is really, the cross is really the point where the the whole theory that every religion kind of is just the same, is just sort of a variation of the same thing, that theory just collapses at the cross because there is no other religious figure like this. There is no other God who would do this. No other religious system allows this. Within an Islamic faith, if you suggest that Allah would become human and would go to the extremity of dying on a cross, that would be offensive to the point of blasphemous within an Islamic faith. And yet this is exactly what we're celebrating today, isn't it? This is the bizarre thing about the Christian faith. This is the unique thing about Jesus, that only Jesus, who is uniquely God, has lowered himself, emptied himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so the question that comes out of that, obviously, is why would he do that? Why would God empty himself like that? He wouldn't just do it for the sake of it. And the, quest, the answer that comes back, page after page in the Bible, is that he did it for us. He did it out of love for us because he values us. And this was the only way to reconcile us to God. Anna and I have just finished watching a series on TV called The Missing might have seen it on TV One. It's a good British drama about a boy that goes missing and his parents search to find him. But one of the interesting subplots in this series is around this character called Vincent Borg. And he's a a dark, shady sort of character. He has a history and a criminal record for crimes against children of a very disturbing nature. I won't mention because there's children here. Um, But he has this track record and this reputation. And on one hand, you're led to despise him because of what he's done. On the other hand, you're kind of drawn into the struggle that he's going through and the self-hatred that he lives with and his desperate search to be cured from this condition. And he tries medication. He tries this toxic chemical medication to try and cure himself and his body rejects that and it leaves him without any long-term hope. And then toward the end of the series, he goes to a church meeting for other people who have his condition. And the leader of the meeting is kind of talking about God and reading some verses from the Bible and Vincent Borg gets fed up with this and he just walks out. And as he's leaving, the the leader of the meeting says to him, no, don't go, don't go, there's always hope. And Vincent Borg says, yeah, I I used to believe in God. But he said, if God exists, then he made me like this. If God exists, then he made us like this. And he scoffs at it and he walks out of the room. A few scenes later, you see Vincent Borg has hung himself in his own apartment. It's this picture of absolute hopelessness. But that meeting, that church meeting, is also terrible theology. A total misrepresentation of even the basics of the Christian faith and the message of Easter. That God didn't make us like this. 
that God didn't make our flaws. He didn't make our failures. He didn't make our weaknesses. We are ultimately responsible for our own brokenness, which has been passed down to us every generation of human history. This world is far from the good world that God created in the beginning. We are far from the good and healthy and whole human beings that God created in the beginning. But humanity is now living with the consequences of its own refusal to embrace God's love. Humanity is now living with the consequences of keeping God at arm's length. And so in a sense, I don't mean to be offensive by this, but in a sense, we are all like that character, Vincent Borg. Not that we have those same proclivities, but we all have this deep sickness in our soul. We all have this deep disease that runs through our human soul and fuels all kinds of selfish desires that manifest themselves in our lives in all kinds of ways. This disease, this virus, if you like, is what the Bible calls sin. At the heart of it, it's the rupture of our own relationship with God. And it infects us like a cancer, like a spiritual cancer that eats away at us and multiplies within us and is deadly and fatal within our souls. This virus of sin, this sickness that we each carry around. And here is the heart of the Easter message. This is the heart of the cross, that when he hung on that cross, when Jesus died, that virus of sin that we are infected with was transferred to Jesus. It was infected into him. That Jesus took upon himself our sickness of soul, our diseased hearts, our sick condition, our broken and flawed humanity. He took upon himself our failures, every single way in which that sin virus infects and contaminates and corrupts our lives. The brokenness of our relationship with our own selves, all of our insecurities, all of our paranoias, all of our pathologies. He took all of that, all of our brokenness in relationships with other people and the ways in which we have hurt others and the ways in which we have been hurt by others, all the ways in which we're victims, all all the ways in which we're offenders. Jesus took all of that on himself, on the cross. And most importantly, he took upon himself our own alienation from God and our stubborn refusal to allow ourselves to be defined by the love that God offers us. Jesus absorbed all of that within his own body, and it killed him. He absorbed it on the cross within himself. Everything that's wrong with you, everything that's wrong with me, he took it upon himself, and that is what killed Jesus. He was killed by the Roman government, but spiritually what took his life was our own diseased humanity, our own corrupted humanity, alienated from God. That is what took Jesus to the grave. And therefore, the Bible says, by his wounds, we can be healed. We can experience new life because Jesus lost his life to sin. Because Jesus became sin for us, we can experience healing. We can experience renewal. And that takes us to today, this day, Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. That's why we're here. This passage doesn't leave us with the death of Jesus. Easter doesn't finish with Good Friday, but it comes right through to Easter Sunday. The hope of Easter Sunday that there can be new life. And here's the reality of this new life that Jesus offers. And verse 9 says, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place. And just a note here, when it talks about God exalting him, this passage is merging together the events of Jesus' resurrection and his ascension to heaven. So Jesus rose from death to life, and then he rose from earth to heaven 40 days later. And this passage describes all of that in one motion as Jesus' exaltation, 
death to life, earth to heaven. So God the Father raised Jesus from the dead, raised him from earth to heaven, and then gave him the name that is above every name. You know what that name is? It's not Jesus. He already had that name. Lord. But at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess Jesus Christ is Lord. That word Lord is the Greek word kurios. And it, it's a word that could mean anyone in, a, in authority. It'd be similar to our word sir. So a slave might use it for their master. An employee might use it for their boss. You could say kurios to anyone in a position of greater authority than you. But if you work your way up the social hierarchy in the Roman world that this letter was written within, you, you eventually get to one kurios right at the top. The emperor, Caesar, the ultimate kurios. And in fact, this word was used of various Caesars in the first century. Lord. And in that sense, it's used of the one who has Lord, the, the jurisdiction, authority over all things, heaven and on earth. The Caesars were believed to be either divine or at least divinely instated by God, put there by God. And they were Lord over all, all authority over the known world. So here is a guy named Paul sitting in a prison cell in Rome, which is the heart of the empire. He's in the belly of the beast here. And he's in a prison cell already put there for treason against the empire. On death row, effectively, waiting on trial for his life. And he's writing to his friends in a city called Philippi, which was a Roman colony full of ex-military veterans, strongly patriotic Roman people, and he's writing to them that Jesus is Lord. This is not just a little Christian claim for Christian people. This is a huge, subversive claim that has massive implications. This is the kind of thing that got you imprisoned in the first century. This is the kind of reason that Christians were thrown into the lions in the subsequent centuries. Not because they claimed that Jesus was the Lord of my own little private interior world but because they claimed that Jesus was Lord of all, the one with all authority over heaven and earth, the one before whom one day every knee would bow in heaven and on earth. Even you, Caesar, one day will bow down to Jesus. That's the reality of this claim. I think sometimes Christians whittle it down. We, we become so reductionistic about Jesus as Lord, and he just becomes Lord of our own tribal gatherings. That's not the reality of the resurrection. The reality of Jesus raised from the dead is that he now, he, he's the one who has come from death to life, from earth to heaven, and now has authority over life and death, earth and heaven. Because of that, he's the one who has authority over, all, whether we acknowledge it or not, whether we recognize it or not, because of the resurrection, Jesus is Lord of all. As the theologian Abraham Kuyper puts it, there is no square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Now, he doesn't cry mine like a spoilt little child. He cries mine as the one who made heaven and earth, the one who has rightful ownership of all things and therefore rightful claim to all things. It's like the old saying, if Jesus is not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. Jesus has authority over all things. That's the reality of the resurrection. And I know that this runs up against the spirit of the postmodern culture in which we live, which is so wary of any kind of exclusivism 
any kind of exclusive claim to the truth, anyone, any group that would claim that their version of the truth would trump another group's version of the truth. And this message doesn't always gel that well, and Christians get accused of being bigoted and arrogant and so on. But we don't say these things because we're arrogant. We say these things because it's simply the reality of Jesus being raised from the dead. It is the meaning of that historic event that he is now Lord over all and extends his loving rule over all creation. So that's the central truth that I'm bringing to the conversation. And I just pray that somehow, graciously, lovingly, respectfully, that I can communicate the reality of that statement, that Jesus is Lord, lovingly and graciously, but that's the reality. And I know that that's not always popular, but this is the reality of the resurrection. Because I think that that's what's most helpful, not banging people over the head, just Jesus is Lord, get with the program, but helping people understand the overall story that this is a part of the unfolding God's unfolding rescue plan within human history that leads to the life and the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus and eventually his becoming Lord. When you can see the unfolding story, it makes more sense. And that's where this passage goes. Right at the end, you get this beautiful picture that one day, this is pointing to the future, one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That means... That one day, even those who don't acknowledge Jesus in this life will be faced with the inescapable reality of his lordship when they see him face to face, when Jesus returns. That one day it will be undeniable that when, when Jesus again physically, bodily returns, his lordship will be evident to all his authority as lord over the cosmos will be in plain sight, in plain view, and then every knee will bow. But on that day it's too late to choose. And what Jesus invites us to do in the present is to bring our lives to him now and name him as Lord now. And this is simply what I want to challenge you with, that if you've never taken this step, if you've never made this move in your life to encourage you in this direction. Sometimes I think we talk about this idea of Jesus as Lord in ways that are not that helpful. We talk about making Jesus Lord. You might have heard that phrase. Someone says, have you made Jesus Lord? You need to make him Lord. Well, the reality is we don't make Jesus Lord. God the Father made him Lord when he raised him from the dead and gave him authority over heaven and earth. He's all, Jesus is already Lord. Whatever we do with him, he's already Lord. He's already reigning over all things. What Jesus invites you to do is to bring your life under his lordship. What he invites you to do is to, is to bring the whole of your existence and bring it under his loving rule, his loving authority, his loving hand. And this is really the other side of the coin from what we talked about earlier with receiving this inner healing from Jesus. Through the death of Jesus, we can be forgiven. Past, present, and future, we receive this new heart. The virus of sin is taken away. And then Jesus invites us into this relationship where he is Lord. Not this relationship where we still have the power position, And we relate to him on our terms, not even a peer relationship where it's just buddy-buddy, but a relationship where he is the defining center of our lives, where he is the defining reality, not first in a whole list of different priorities, but the priority in our life around which everything else orbits. That Jesus is now the center 
of our world and our existence. That's the kind of relationship that he invites us into. And I want to encourage you and challenge you in that direction this morning, that maybe you've made a decision like that or maybe you've never even thought about it. Maybe you just thought you're coming to church on Sunday, just sit through the service and you're just sort of thinking about the lunch at the end of the service. I want to encourage you to take seriously the reality of Jesus' death and the reality of his resurrection and the reality of the invitation that he now gives you to new life, to bring your life to him, to acknowledge that you're broken, to acknowledge that you are messed up. We all are utterly flawed people. To acknowledge that freely and then to receive his forgiveness, his clean... doesn't mean you're suddenly a perfect person and you no longer have any proclivity towards sin, but it means the power of that stuff is broken and it no longer defines you. That's not your identity anymore. That identity is taken away and nailed to the cross with Jesus. And I want to encourage you into a new relationship with Jesus where you go through your own spiritual resurrection on Easter Sunday morning. What better day to do it than Easter Sunday morning to, in a sense, be raised to new life? And it is nothing less than a new life. That's why Christians talk about being born again. And I know that's a bit of a slang phrase that has all kinds of baggage. But it's an apt metaphor because the kind of transformation we're talking about is nothing less than a rebirth to new life. And that offer... Is, is here for you and everything that needs to be done to make that available has been done. I simply encourage you. We're going to take a couple of minutes uh, in a moment to have communion together. And I encourage you to use that time to simply begin a conversation with Jesus. That's where it starts. It's just talking to God. Just talking to him like, like you would talk to a friend. It's, it's what we call prayer. And I want to encourage you to have a conversation with God during this time. Even if the conversation goes like... God, I've got no idea what this is about. I don't even know if you exist. I don't know what this Easter thing is. I don't really know yet, but I want to know more. My heart is open. I want to explore who you are, Jesus. I want this new life. There's something about you, Jesus, that I know that I need in the deepest level of my being, and I can suppress it, and I can not listen to it, but it haunts me, and I know it. I want to encourage you to open your heart. Begin a conversation with Jesus. Ask him to make himself known to you in a personal way and begin that journey of exploration. You don't have to have all the answers. You certainly don't have to have your life altogether to take that first step. Just a first step towards Jesus, a bringing of your life to him and acknowledging him as Lord. And I want to encourage you that if you are a follower of Jesus here, This is a time for us to be renewed by who Jesus is. It's so easy to go Easter by Easter by Easter and just become numb to the meaning of these events. I want to encourage you to absolutely refuse to take this for granted. Absolutely refuse to go through another communion meal and another Resurrection Sunday with just sort of a mediocre appreciation for what has happened here. I want to encourage you to deeply reflect on what it has cost, the self emptying the kenosis of our saviour to empty himself to be gutted for you on your behalf and then to be raised new to new life i want to encourage you to be refreshed by the grace of god to allow him to speak again his word of love and forgiveness over your life and for you afresh to bring your life to him and acknowledge him again as lord and maybe there's an area of your life where you need to acknowledge him as lord and allow his authority to take root in your life. This is a moment to deeply appreciate the significance of who Jesus is, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. Let me pray and we're going to share in communion together. If you're here this morning and 
God is stirring your heart and you know this is a day for you to take a next step towards Jesus. I want to just lead you in a simple prayer and, and you may want to pray these words after me. You can pray them in the quietness of your own heart. You can turn them into your own words, whatever you want to do. There's no magic formula. But I want to just express some thoughts to God on your behalf, just as a guide for you. And you may want to pray along with this. God, I know, we know that we are so broken. And God, we're so good at masking it and hiding it from you, from each other, even from ourselves. But God, we are confronted today by the inescapable reality that we are broken people, that we are messed up, that we have a deep problem in the core of our being that we cannot cure ourselves. Jesus, I look to you this morning. I look to the cross and I acknowledge that there you have paid the price for all my sin, all of my brokenness, all of my wrongdoing, all of my woundedness, everything I've done as an offender, everything that has been done to me as a victim. You've absorbed it all on the cross, Jesus. Jesus, I thank you for that and, and thank you seems so inadequate, but I thank you. And I want to ask now that you would forgive me. I know that's possible because you've absorbed my sin. So I ask that you would cleanse me and renew me and take the sickness from me. Cure me, God, of the spiritual cancer at the depth of my being. Take it away. Break its power. Remove that old identity from me. Forgive me completely, Jesus, I pray. And Jesus, I want to step into a new relationship with you. I thank you that you want a relationship with me at all. I thank you that you love me so much. And I want to step into that today. And I want to acknowledge, Jesus, that you are Lord. Lord over my life. Lord over this world. And I want to bring my life now under your rule, under your authority, under your lordship, knowing that you made me, knowing that you know what is best for me and knowing that you will lovingly lead me and guide me as I submit to you. So Jesus, I step into that relationship. I ask you now that you would fill my life with your presence. Bring me into your family. Give me a new identity that is anchored and planted in relationship with you, the crucified and living Savior. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.